All right. So uh, welcome to the Bailey. This is the podcast that reminds you that you're not being detained. I'm your host, Yassine Maskhot. And today's topic is an unconventional conversation on policing. Uh, probably the best way to describe it. We have first-timer Hoffmeister, who thinks that police are too restrained and wants to see more summary executions. And we have, of course, our veteran Kulak, who thinks that police is the tool of the progressive nanny state, and they're the ones who should be summarily executed. And then, of course, radical old me, public defender that is a staunch critic of police practices. I'm nominally an anarchist, but my non-ACAP position probably questions my membership. So, gentlemen, welcome. Hey, Yassine. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining. So let's start with you, Hoffmeister. I mean, I gave a description for your position, uh, but of course, you don't have to take it. Uh, How would you categorize your position? I would say that in any healthy or well-ordered society, the state acts as an extension of, or I guess a, uh, a weapon or tool that the vast majority of the normal healthy, productive segment of the population can wield against a very small percentage of the population that is incapable of existing productively and peacefully in any civilized society. And that by expanding the resources and the powers that the state can wield against that again, fairly small but implacable percentage of the human population, we can then secure for the vast majority of the rest of us a far more well-ordered, happy, productive life. And that would, in practice, involve, in my opinion, vastly expanding the death penalty, vastly expanding the array of punishments and the number of crimes that can merit punishment by the justice system or the carceral state. So, uh, Kulak, uh, you know, I gave like a characterization of your position, but how would you uh, describe yours? My position is that the police are a profoundly unnatural imposition on free men, that they are an alien institution brought about by the rise of the nanny state in about the mid 1800s. Before that, um, for the first 70 to 80 years of American history and most of frontier existence, there was a judge, an elected sheriff, and then functionally all, all defense of property, all enforcement of laws, all tracking down of um, fugitives, were either done by private individuals or by bounty hunters hired by the city uh, who were collecting an open bounty on their target. The existence of police forces that will show up and arrest you for defending your own property property, or for protecting yourself or for doing anything that a normal functional human being would take as the bare minimum for being a free man is entirely an artifact of the rising totalitarian state after the Civil War and especially as Prussian institutions took over. Uh, American Western life. So I think the police should not exist. I think there should be an elected sheriff and elected judges. And aside from that, it should be individuals defending themselves and communities defending themselves. So if you had that, the riots we see 
every decade in American life would not happen because the people who actually own the property that's being burned down would be able to defend it. The police would not exist to just defend criminals from the public. American life would function as it's meant to function with people able to defend themselves. Okay. Uh, so this is going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> so Hoffmeister, I think to give uh, to get more detail on your position, what you described is uh, you said something about how uh, police are necessary as an arm, as a way to impose order on the few, I guess, like the minority in, in population that is unwilling to behave itself. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a fairly accurate characterization of my position. Right. Uh, and But that's a like a fairly banal position. That's like the mainstream uh, position. Um, that's a that's a mainstream defense of uh, why we need policing. Uh, that there are some people that are reluctant to just behave themselves. That's why they need to be you know addressed by force. But so I guess in order to distinguish yourself, you take it a step further. You want a dramatic increase in the level of enforcement, right? Yes, I think what would distinguish my position from, say, the average uh, liberal individualist, you know, the the mainstream, I guess, normie consensus in 21st century, at least America, and it seems like Europe as well, is that I think I think that the percentage of the population that is incapable of living among us in a civilized way is, I think, uh, significantly larger than I think what most people would estimate. And I think that most people, at least again, in, in America and Europe, I can't speak to other parts of the world, I think conceive of uh, the purpose of the justice system as on some level rehabilitative. Uh, you know, the idea is to uh, get people to do their time and to feel really bad about what they did and give them some time to feel bad about what they did. And then we can let them back out into society once they've, you know, paid their dues or whatever uh, to come back and live among us. Um, and I think that the the most punitive you're going to get uh, out of most people in terms of how they conceive of the justice system is like, well, you know, there are definitely people who, uh, you know, they're they're just not ever gonna be good people. They're they're naturally violent. They lack impulse control. They were raised in a bad culture or had a bad parenting situation, and we just need to get them away from us from a while. We put it for a while. We put them in in prison to sequester them from the rest of society for some length of time until we can guarantee that they're not going to be a danger to themselves or others anymore. I would take it a step further to say that there are people whose lives have essentially no inherent or significant inherent moral value, and that it is the responsibility of the state, or barring that, the responsibility of the community, like Kulak said, or individuals, to just remove those people essentially permanently uh, from society. Um, again, I think the death penalty should be widely expanded in its use and how quickly and expeditiously we're willing to use it against people convicted of crimes. Uh, there are people who are irredeemable. It is hopeless to attempt to irredeem them. It is morally wrong to waste time and resources and energy attempting to redeem them. And it's better to just call it like it is, say these people don't matter 
every minute they spend among the rest of us is just a drain on the rest of us, a significant drain. They're a parasitic element of society that we need to respond to forcefully and I think violently. Okay. Uh, so let's get into some details. When you say that the portion of the, por- uh, the portion of the population that you think is irredeemable is undercounted, uh, can you describe like what factor is it undercounted and which specific, I guess, offenses would you say are undercounting it? I will say that I think the vast majority of people, not the vast majority of people in charge of American or Canadian or European societies, but the vast majority of like average people support the death penalty for at least some offenses, murder, um, child rape, uh, you know, assassinating the president. Uh, you know, we could think of the, the really, really, really bad stuff. But yeah, I, I, I make an exception specifically for assassinating politicians. I think I think regular <laughs> murder is regular murder is a capital offense. Um, killing politicians is is merely a, is merely a felony offense. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I'm glad you at least acknowledge it's not a misdemeanor. Um, but I, I would say that um, uh, you know, most the average person would at least not be willing to say in polite company that they support the death penalty for, say, a, uh, a burglar or uh, somebody who, uh, you know, breaks into like these gangs of teenagers we see ransacking jewelry stores or retailers. Uh, I think that's a pretty good sign if you're one of those people uh, that society is just not for you. And uh, we're we're we as a society are not for you. And uh, it's it's time to get rid of you uh, publicly. People are willing to say that Jeffrey Dahmer is irredeemable, but they are not willing to say that, for example, uh, somebody like George Floyd uh, had it coming. And uh, I just think that unequivocally uh, huge numbers of, let's say, um, profoundly mentally ill people, people who have committed basically anything more than one felony, uh, it's curtains, curtains for them. Okay, so... Setting a, there's going to be a disagreement between how you feel about the death penalty and how the general uh, population feels about the death penalty, where you're much more in, in favor of it, right? Uh, correct. But setting, setting that aside, you don't think there's an under-enforcement or an under-punishment uh, of murder or child rape, do you? Uh, no, of, of the very serious crimes, no. I mean, obviously, in many major cities, the murder clearance rate is abysmally low in American cities. I think in places like Philadelphia or Baltimore, we're looking at like under half of murders are solved. Uh, so yes, in that sense, obviously, a large number of murderers and other very serious criminals are not being brought to justice. Um, but in terms of like the average person's perception of how many murders are being uh, committed. No, I, I don't think the average person is like vastly underestimating homicide numbers. In fact, I think, you know, depending on who you talk to, some people are either vastly overestimating, I think in some places at least, criminal numbers. Uh, but but no, I, I would say that um, what I mean is that I agree with the average person about what to do about the really serious criminals, but I'm much less squeamish than the average person is about what to do with a much larger percentage of the criminal population. Okay. Uh, now, um, when you said that, I mean, I, I agree with you about the, the clearance rate. Does that give you pause about how to implement your uh, position? 
Uh, can you be more specific about why you think that should, uh, I, I mean, you know, that to me seems like a sign of the under-resourced nature of a lot of these um, police departments and also the fact that large portions of the populace, at least in certain communities, to use a, a term that I generally hate, are refusing to cooperate with the police department. That seems to be the main factor here is just people who, uh, if they were just simply willing to identify the perpetrators by name, these murders could be solved very easily as long as the police had the resources to devote to attempting to get that information. Um, but no, I, I would say that if anything, it's a, it's a confirmation of the fact that police departments need to have not only greater resources, but greater buy-in from much larger parts of the population. Okay. I actually agree with you that a reason why the clearance rate is so low for so many crimes is that there isn't as much buy-in from the population. There isn't as much cooperation from the community, the word that you hate so much. But I mean, how, how do you fix that? You can't just like snap your fingers and say, okay, now communities are fully cooperating with police. Right. I mean, obviously this would involve a larger societal shift to mm -hmm people agreeing with my position. I don't have dictatorial powers and I have basically no influence or reach to uh, affect the opinions of, let's say, uh, underclass poor blacks in Baltimore. Um, so mm -hmm. obviously this would necessarily involve a larger shift in public attitudes uh, that would have to underpin this uh, shift in the uh, approach of the justice system. I'm not advocating for, uh, you know, a police state that exists totally against the will of the larger populace. Okay. I mean, it's fair to acknowledge this, I guess, the limitations. We are talking about hypotheticals. Uh, but um, to the extent that someone doesn't uh, approve of the death penalty because they worry that too many, uh, let's say, innocent people are wrongfully convicted, that's going to be a necessary implication of a low clearance rate. In so far as the police don't have the full information to solve crimes, they're going to make some mistakes, right? Well, yes, although I think that the average person vastly overestimates the probability of a person being falsely accused of a crime. I think that not only the mechanics of American jurisprudence, like constitutional uh, guarantees to criminal defendants, things like that, that are a longstanding part of the American justice system, uh, but also the... I guess, general attitudes or, or uh, memes that, that people have absorbed, they have this, when they think about the death penalty, they immediately imagine themselves being falsely accused of a crime. They think, well, what, uh, you know, what civil rights or guarantees would I like to have on my side if I happened to find myself in a court of law falsely accused of a crime which I did not commit? The actual probability of that taking place in the 21st century in which we have very advanced DNA testing technology and very widespread video surveillance, including widespread phone cameras. I just think the odds of a person being seriously prosecuted for a crime that they just absolutely did not commit and were not involved in in any way is just radically lower than the average person seems to imagine that it is. Okay, but if let's say if you were to order or rank the reforms that you wanted, one is you snap your fingers and you have community buy-in that helps cooper uh, that cooperates with police in solving crimes, and then the other one is you have a vastly increased the uh, death penalty imposition. 
do you want, I'm assuming you want the first one to happen before the second, right? Yes, absolutely. As I said, I, um, I mean, I do in some senses, and I've said this in various forums, I, I do see myself as a vanguardist in a sense, meaning that I do think that probably large parts of the populace are just never going to have the right opinions about certain things. They're, they're just going to be too susceptible to bad memes and bad arguments to the point where mm-hmm. on some level, it's just going to take a certain threshold of serious people to make the rules and the rest of the people will shift their own opinions based on what the powerful are doing. Uh, but no, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. love the optics of living in like an, an, uh, you know, what everybody or the vast majority of the people in the country would view as like an oppressive imposed in, you know, an imposition or oppressive police state on them. Um, I think that step one of achieving the kind of larger public regime that I want is first off for the media and NGOs that that control basically the media to just stop blatantly lying about policing in America, blatantly lying about what police are doing, blatantly lying about numbers, misrepresenting the state of policing and how it relates to race, obviously, among other things in this country. If the media would just stop lying to people and they had access to just basic good information and arguments and not being manipulated by a media that hates them and wants them to suffer, uh, I think that the buy-in could be achieved pretty uh comprehensively and and fairly quickly okay i have some follow-up questions but kulak do you have anything to say that uh do you have do you disagree with anything that hofmeister has said um i significantly disagree that most of these problem communities actually have much if any incentive to ever be bought in um if you look at a lot of the the crimes and dynamics in a lot of these communities they are very happy to defend people they know are murderers and protect them because that's their menfolk and that's their high status menfolk who are bringing in lots of resources. And in their mind, it's, oh, they're committing crimes, but they're committing crimes against the general populace who they view as a rival ethnicity. Who cares? Like, if you look at the problem communities, it's not the case that, oh, they wish crime would go away or they wish there was more policing or any of these boomer, boomer con memes that everyone's a conservative in their heart. They're very happy to watch watch members of, of their communities get away with crimes, often against very, very sympathetic victims like old people robbed and beaten in their house, houses. They're happy to see that that happen because it's benefiting them. And I don't see how basically that you could solve that problem with policing without, without a majority just imposing it on these dissident communities and saying, no, we're just going to impose this on you. Sucks to suck. We aren't going to tolerate this, which as soon as you have that, you're empowering the state to crush communities and, and be an authoritarian state, which we know that our governing class will immediately, immediately use against the productive parts of the country that they despise. So your objection, your objection is mostly, I guess, in the implementation aspect. Uh, 
the implementation and also just the power dynamics. Americans hate each other. Like, this is the fundamental reality of America, that Americans and Canadians have these massive class class and ethnic and value differences that are insurmountable and create a hard incentive differences. But that, that still sounds like an implementation issue, right? Well, it's not just the implementation. It's the fact that if you create an empowered police state, it's going to be empowering the people who control the police, which is inevitably the federal government and the classes of people who run the bureaucracy. See, this is why, as opposed to to empowering the police or creating a more powerful state, I'd say, no, go back to how we did things before this massive state bureaucracy was created, where the sheriff's job is, in regards to combating crime, is basically calling good, good shoots on behalf of people defending their own property. We don't need massive investigations to get the murder clearance rate up to 80-90% if the people who are committing the violent crime, every time they commit a violent crime, there's a 25% chance that they're going to be shot by their victim. So you would want to see, I guess, a return to more, sorry for the term, but community-based law enforcement. I wouldn't say community-based. I'd say say individual-based. I'd say um, lone man with a gun based law enforcement that if you're being victimized in your own home, you should, you should be able to and expected to shoot the person who's attacking you. If you're being mugged on the street, you should be able to and expected to shoot the person attacking who's mugged you. Even if they've turned and started to walk away, you should be able to shoot them in the back for taking your property. How, I guess, how do you keep that under control or, let me let me rephrase that. How do you ensure that the violence that gets meted out under the system is indeed righteous and not just born out of personal vendetta or bias or whatever? There would be a level of vendetta, yes, but nothing compared to what we have have now. The murder rate in a place like Baltimore often eclipses a hundred per hundred thousand, so that's one percent of the population that every 10 years and 10% of the population every 100. There are places in America where you're more likely to die of a gunshot than even even heart disease. But the real thing that would be a check on it is A, community, and B, we wouldn't be getting rid of legal review. There'd still be judges. There'd still be lawyers. There'd still, still be sheriffs. It's just instead of this expectation that no, you shouldn't defend yourself or you should only defend yourself as a last resort or you should should have an obligation to run away or as they're, they now impose it in Canada and Europe and are trying to impose in some American states that you don't have a right to defend yourself at all. It should be assumed that you have an absolute right to defend yourself, your property, and other people. and And there should be an expectation that if it's assessed that no, you were being a law-abiding citizen and someone else was being criminal towards yours. Someone else, there should be a presumption that you responding with force, including lethal force, is perfectly legitimate, as was the case throughout most of the 19th century. Throughout most of the 19th century, uh, to respond to gang violence, to respond to, to respond to horse thieves, to respond to robbers, it was expected that that the local sheriff might be about, or it might just be be the men of the town or some deputized civilians acting out in their capacity and and knowing the law 
as they would be expected to do if they're going to act in this capacity, and then doing so. You look at a Ponzi in the 19th century, 95% of any given Ponzi is just civilians of the town who've been temporarily deputized by whoever raised the Ponzi. Okay, so part of your response is that, uh, regarding the vendetta question, is that it already happens under a regime of uh, legitimized police enforcement, right? Yes, it's already happened. Happening now, um, all that would really change is is that it would be heavily disincentivized. Since right now, if you look at um, most crime, crime in the U.S. is backed up by a vendetta system where where armed gangs know and are able to intimidate witnesses, go after rats, et cetera, et cetera. And it, there should be an expectation that. If you're going out to hurt someone, there's a 30 to 40% chance you aren't going to come back. Okay. And so regarding, I guess, the the posse system of the 19th century, uh, how would you safeguard that against corruption? Against corruption? Yeah. How do we safeguard How do we safeguard the police against corruption today? There are police departments, departments across the country. It's very common for police to be running protection rackets. The big thing with the posse system is instead of creating this class of individuals who have qualified or in some places damn near absolute immunity from prosecution unless you can get them dead to rights on basically any kind of abuse, instead the posse, it's a civilian. You're subjected to the same scrutiny as any civilian in that scenario. Now, it's a lower standard than we have today where civilians are not expected to defend themselves at all. But it's significantly. Uh, hold on. Why would it be the same? Why would it be the same scrutiny? Uh, let's say. I mean, if you're under, like, I guess, like a posse system with a sheriff, that's the only uh, government employee. Who's gonna hold a civilian accountable if they fuck up? Lawyers. I know, but what power did it? What power would they have? Uh, you're. You're heralding it as a a distinction from, I guess, the current system of giving cops absolute or qualified immunity. Ideally, I'd like to see it that any lawyer lawyer or anyone who's able to file the paperwork should be able to bring a criminal suit against anyone. Yeah, but who who is going to enforce it? Why would they enforce it? Who's going to enforce it? There's still a court system. There's still still judges. So, So let's say a posse has been raised and... They went to arrest your brother, and he was gunned down. And you look at the evidence, and and you think, no, they just executed him. They dragged him out of the house. There was a witness, witness, and they murdered him in his own own field. Well, you have the, the witness, you have evidence, so you file criminal char- charges with the courts. The courts do have marshals who are very separate from our traditional policing. So the courts have marshals and they have the ability to issue warrants of, of their own enforceable by bounty hunters. And you, and you file the paperwork and then bring it to court. Uh, you're describing marshals. Not every state has, not every state court system has marshals. That tends to be only the, the federal system that has the U.S. marshals. But that, that you're describing just like another police force though, right? Uh, no, it'd be specifically to enforce court orders. So um, so right now, police, their job is to go about and patrol and look for crime and harass you if you're driving slightly over to the speed limit or if you're doing 
doing something else. Their job is to hunt down people looking looking for crime and perform illegal searches and generally harass the population. Okay, I understand the distinction. How the markets would work is that the, the entire process would be initiated by lawyers bringing bringing suits, whether criminal or civil, and then after that's been signed off by three three lawyers, so lawyer brings the suit, um, another lawyer maybe opposes it for extra Y reason, then the judge judge makes a decision. Then it goes to the marshal, and then they go to bring the person in for um, the court, court process. So it's inherently subjected to way, way more scrutiny and prior restraint, like pre-scrutiny. Okay. Scrutiny and anything that a a police officer does today. Hoffmeister, you wanted to say something? Well, first off, yeah, I mean, I basically agree with Yasin here that what Kulak is describing is just police with extra steps. Um, I, 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 you know, that's probably a little bit uncharitable, but I, I mean, first off, a ton of what beat cops do actually is uh, tracking down, locating, and apprehending people with warrants for their arrest. I mean, I could. That's true. Like that's just that's a huge amount of what beat cops do. I could, you know, send you a hundred videos, police body cam videos, which I'm sure we could talk about. Yes, and I think that should be removed from their purview. It should be given to to bounty hunters that any citizen can fulfill this role, and any citizen fulfilling that that role is subject to the scrutiny that we subject civilians to when they're involved in acts acts of violence. There shouldn't be this category of police officers who are empowered with more, with all these immunities to carry out acts of violence for the state. So hold on. If I'm subjected to a crime, let's say I'm mugged, uh, you know, I'm, I'm shaken down on the sidewalk. A guy uh, takes off with my wallet, successfully gets away. I'm, I'm unable to apprehend him, shoot him, whatever you would propose uh, at that moment. I've now lost him, uh, right? I'd, I'd like to get my wallet back. I'd like to get my credit card and my cash and my ID and my social security card and whatever else I had uh, back. Uh, so I, what? I spend my own money to hire a bounty hunter or private investigator to figure out who this mugger is in a city of 3 million people. Uh, on the off chance that he's able to actually successfully figure out who the guy is, then he apprehends him and brings him to the court at my expense, or is the is this subsidized by like the judge pays for the bounty hunter? Uh, I mean, again, at this point, you're I'm still outsourcing the need, or I'm outsourcing the uh, investigation into who this guy is and the apprehension of this guy to a party that's not me, right? I'm not doing this myself. I am a private citizen with a life and a job. I don't have uh, the ability to quit my job or my life. On I, I think you misunderstand my objection to police. My objection to police isn't that there are people carrying out viol- violence. My objection to police is that it's people carrying out violence on behalf of the state. My objection is to creating a state standing army of uniformed people to be used against the population. So the fact that you might hire a private investigator to track this guy down or that you might personally investigate and then, and then tackle this guy and shoot him in a dispute, that is fine with me. 
Like, I'm, this is not a humanitarian objection. This is an objection to creating a standing army which can be used against the popula- population, as we've seen throughout American history, and as we saw during the summer of Floyd, where the police acted as a standing army to prevent the population from defending themselves against rioters. Uh, America should be a nation of Kyle Rittenhouses. Okay, so look, I, I mean... <laughs> So look, like Kulak and I, it, it, it seems that Kulak and I at least agree. And Yassine, obviously you've been picking our brains. I want to pick yours uh, pretty soon here too. But it seems like Kulak and I obviously agree that the correct response to somebody committing like a serious crime, a theft, uh, a burglary, uh, you know, an offense against someone's property or physical safety or life should be eventually this person tracked down and either killed or have the absolute piss beaten out of them. I think Kulak and I, at least on that front, seem to agree. And we just we disagree vastly about the the means by which that is achieved. Right? I, I, Kulak, I think you and I are both on the same page about that at least, that like the the penalty for a vast majority of crimes is your life is forfeit. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't take it that far. I think um obviously resisting uh, lawful arrest. Um, eventually, everything, everything in any political system is backed up with, and if you resist, we'll shoot you. But the, I disagree that someone who surrenders, who submits himself to the justice system, that like maybe ten percent of that should end in execution. I, I figure, I favor a broad system of corporal punishment, maimings, and executions. So, um, but privately made it out. Right, potentially privately meted out, but ideally via a court system with some some review, some centralization under some authority. I'm an anarcho-capitalist, so I think um, it should be divided up into smaller polities using their own judgment about this stuff. But um, so, for example, you track a guy down, you tackle him to the ground, or you hire or you report to the sheriff who raises a posse who who is trying to appeal to his um, constituents by tackling tackling crime, who is is tracking this stuff, who does bring the person in. I think um, I think like minor stuff like shoplifting should be canings, which might take a person out of action for like a month or so. I think larger crimes like um, old biblical punishments like hacking off a hand seem to me vastly more humane than like imprisoning someone for 10 years where they might be sexually assaulted at random, depending on how strong they are or how well they thrive in the prison environment, which is a horrible selection pressure that, oh, because you're the kind of person who can thrive amongst criminals, you have effectively a massively lighter sentence than someone who's like normal and functional or who probably is less of a threat. I I think the entire prison system should be abolished and Maybe some some crimes are just caning, some crimes are loss of fingers, some crimes are loss of limbs. But I think, as someone who has suffered fairly major injuries in my history, the prospect of like having an arm chopped off seems vastly, vastly more humane than having 15 to 20 years of your life chopped off. Okay, I, I guess we can talk about the specific punishments. I have just a couple of questions for you, Kulak. How do you... I, <laughs> 
your uh, being exposed to your position is always uh, enlightening to me because I can say I'm an anarchist, but then I talk to you and I'm like, oh shit, maybe maybe I'm not. Uh, how do you ensure? How do you ensure that let's say like a, a sheriff's posse doesn't just meet out uh, racial uh, reckoning? Uh, how do you ensure that that sheriffs today don't? Uh, there's obviously the federal government exists to over, oversee that and prevent stuff like that. But functionally, the federal government, you've just separated the question by um, one degree. Okay, who stops the federal government from meeting out racial justice? And many would argue that the federal government exists to meet out its own perverse definitions of racial justice. Okay. As you see in like bizarre stuff like Waco and whatnot. So you don't get rid of the principal agent problem there. But um, the big thing is when you have smaller units that are, that are enforcing the law, so let's say a sheriff's posse of 20, like uh, your local sheriff is corrupt, starts running a protection racket on the town town, and like murdering his rivals and, and shaking down local businesses. That is way, way easier for like a counter posse of like 10 to 15 righteous people to just kill them as opposed to a police department of maybe 500. So, like, there are entire movies that run around this concept of the good old South and stuff where um, some corrupt good old, good old boys are um, shaking downtown or running, like, prostitution rings and whatnot. And, okay. and the hero, some, some group of people, kill the sheriff. And that seems to me like a much basically the only way you're going to get around this principal agent problem is, oh, and if they piss people off enough, someone will kill them. Okay, I understand. Like, you're going to get around it by saying, oh, we're going to create a larger and larger authority, which can then become tyrannical and is then going to be even harder to overthrow the tyranny. Yeah, but ultimately, the only solution for tyranny is tyrannicide. And ultimately, if the government's if a governing institution or or local local um, military force is corrupt, the only way you're going to get rid of that isn't going to be by creating a more powerful force force that can become more corrupt and will be harder to get rid of. Rid of if it does become corrupt, it's no. At that point, you're going to have to enact a violence against them. Right. I was going to. One of my follow up questions was going to be, you know, how do you prevent? How would you want? Well, how would you prevent something like uh, Pablo Escobar waging war against the Colombian uh, government, like laying siege to the uh, Supreme Court, the Ministry of Justice, or just having the entire or at least parts of the military apparatus under his control? And your answer would be something along the lines of, well, you need a bigger meter out of violence to counter it. And how do you know that that's not going to be worse, right? Yes. And so for specifically the Colombian example, uh, Pablo Escobar was not the most corrupt authority in Colombia. Uh, Pablo Escobar, uh, if you look at it from the level of the population of Medellin, they're benefiting immensely from the coca trade. Uh, the population of Colombia was making tons of money off of the cocaine trade. It was their government was selling them out to the Americans who didn't want the cocaine trade happening because it was hurting America. Uh, my argument would be Pablo Escobar was the lesser of two evils there, and he was only able to create such a large and powerful cartel 
because Colombia was under the threat of a larger, more illegitimate cartel, which was the U.S. international order. Okay. Hofmeister, <laughs> uh, I have a question for you. Do you, uh, do you support, like, I guess, the current regime of felony crimes? Uh, how do you mean? Do you mean that are, are there any laws that are currently, are there any things that are currently felonies that I think shouldn't be? Is that what you mean? Or, yes. or the other way around? Yes. Uh, not, not off the top of my head. No, I, I, uh, I mean, you know, maybe we, maybe there's some edge case that's not, uh, not coming to me right now. Uh, but no, it's pretty tough for me to imagine something right now that is being like under punished. So even things like drug possession or, or, or over punished, I mean, oh yeah, no, I'm, 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 uh, I'm a big drug hawk. Yeah. Uh, I mean, weed, you know. Whatever. We we could talk about marijuana. I don't think you you know. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mount a big stand in favor of anti marijuana laws. But yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, meth, PCP, fentanyl, uh, bath salts. Uh, I mean, these things. Yes, they should absolutely be felonies to use and possess to attempt to prevent potentially normal, healthy, productive people from rapidly spiraling into becoming exactly the type of irredeemable people who are no longer capable of existing in civilized society that I'm talking about. Uh, it's, it's most people who uh, start using crystal meth seriously, there's really no coming back from it. And having spent uh, far more of my life than I would like uh, being around people who are either uh, using meth or clearly are addicted to meth, same with heroin, same with, again, PCP, any of these really hard drugs. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable saying that um, they turn people into, they make people feral. They turn people into precisely the kinds of people that the carceral state is then necessary to crack down very harshly on. And by trying to head this off at the pass by uh, Duterte-style killing drug dealers, um, by cracking down significantly on possession and public use of these hard drugs. We're trying to prevent people from becoming the people who then are on the inextricable road to a public hanging at some point in the near future. You see, I, I object to that logic entirely. Um, my opinion on the drug wars is that um, basically it's a massive process of trying to shift blame away from the people who are actually guilty in terms of decaying society, which is drug users themselves. So you'll notice there are all these possession charges that are heavily, heavily applied. Yet all the normal crimes that in the 19th century were applied for like public drunkenness are not applied at at all. If you just ruthlessly enforced public intoxication laws, indecent exposure laws, um, vagrancy laws, laws, all the problems of, of drug use would either be shifted into very private spaces or most likely all the dysfunctional people who are using drugs and driving this trade would be locked in such a cycle of misery of being arrested for public intoxication and having to go through full withdrawal of seven days of being being detained detained within a drunk tank tank or some other corporal punishment that you just make it too miserable and horrible to be a drug user because you'd be constantly 
get out for one day, get one hit in, and then seven days back going through withdrawal systems symptoms again because you were object- arrested for being or detained for being a an awful drug addict on the street making things miserable. The fact that we we blame the decay of public spaces on the drugs instead of the fact that the people making those spaces horrible immediately in the in the present is is a farce because the simple fact is that basically for the past 300 years years there's always been this class of awfuls destroying public spaces it's not the drugs um, uh, when it was just liquor there are public drunks who are doing the exact same fucking thing. When when it was reefer, there was reefer madness. When it was cocaine, all suddenly it was crack. And now that heroin has gone from like a very hard to access opioid that has to be imported and only nurses and very obscure rich people had access to it, to now being widely available. Now you have op- uh, heroin fiends on on the street. The problem isn't any of the individual drugs, which you look at some of the drugs that used to be amphetamines were used by the German high command. It isn't the drugs themselves that are causing these massive decays of public spaces. It's this bottom 1% of lowest impulse control, lowest, lowest agreeability, lowest functionality human beings are just abusing the worst drugs they can get their hands on because they want to be high, and they're destroying public spaces because no one's punishing them for destroying public spaces. Ideally, you wouldn't be having this massive combat against international drug trade to deal with these people. Ideally, you'd have storekeepers going out with sticks and beating them to get get the hell away from their store. Well, so do you you dispute that there are certain drugs which by their very nature, are very likely to turn even the most normal and otherwise high-functioning person who uses them into the type of low-functioning people that you're talking about? Like, do you think that there are a large population of, like, hidden crystal meth users who go to work daily and live their whole lives as productive citizens and just do meth on the side and we just never hear about them? Or do you think that there's something about crystal meth? And oh, yeah, yeah. If you actually look at the statistics, those people absolutely exist. Something like um, 90% of everyone who's ever used heroin uh, did not use it a... I can't recall the statistic, but it's like a fifth or sixth time, like, there's this whole category of people who have used basically every drug, and then just didn't use it again. Uh, so 90% of heroin users do not become addicts. Um, you can ask the gay community especially, that most people who use crystal meth use it, like, once at a party, and then don't use it again. And you see this with pretty much every drug that every drug that exists out there, there's this vast category of people who have used it at some point in a party capacity or in some degenerate behavior that they were indulging in, who just went back to normal life afterwards. Hoffmeister, I want to, this is a related point. Um, I think you said something about how, uh, 
you wanted, I guess, to dramatically increase the punishment for felonies, right? I do. That's correct. Okay. And uh, part of it uh, is you noted something about how rehabilitation doesn't work. I think you have, it's fair to say that you have a grim view of its effectiveness, right? Correct. I would say, uh, I mean, you look at recidivism numbers, they're through the roof. Um, People who are convicted of violent crimes are very likely to then be convicted of more violent crimes. Um, You know, there are certain crimes, you know, I don't think uh, Sam Bankman Freed uh, is likely to go and uh, stab somebody in the chest on the New York City subway because he was convicted of a white collar crime. Uh, but yeah, when we talk about certain types of crimes, there nobody does them just once, or uh, it, not a lot of people just do them once. So uh, part of your support for this dramatically harsher punishment state is the fact that recidivism is high, rehabilitation doesn't generally work, right? Uh, correct, and also that like. Even if recidivism were lower and even if rehabilitation were more likely to work, I don't care about these people and I don't know why we're devoting these many resources and time to trying to redeem them. Like if you committed an armed robbery, like I fuck you like i I don't like uh, it, you know we could uh instate some some regime of like lifetime supervision and social workers and chemical interventions and all these things to try and make you into someone who's not going to commit another armed robbery. And maybe that will all work if we try really, really hard. And, you know, maybe it won't at the end of the day, like you committed an armed robbery and I just genuinely don't care why anybody would like you to stay alive or want you to come back into society. We're not hurting for people like we have plenty of the vast majority of us will never do that we'll never commit an armed robbery and how about we just uh dedicate society to trying to make things better for the vast majority of us who don't do things like that right but you're you're leading with like the example of armed robbery what about something like you know trying to cash a fraudulent check that's 230 dollars or something right sure look like what to do with things um, that do not involve any violence or theft or where the particular victim of the crime is a little bit less discreet. Uh, I I don't, you know, I I think that most of the things that people call victimless crimes aren't actually victimless, but sure, there are certain process crimes that are basically crimes against the state, tax evasion, things like that. Um, Or again, certain white collar crimes that I'm not sure, like I'm basically with Kulak on that in terms of corporal punishment. Like I'm totally down to see Sam Bankman freed caned or whipped in public or put into the stocks for a week or whatever it might take. I, I think he might not, not only he might benefit from that, but society can still get enough value out of a Sam Bankman freed or even a Bernie Madoff. Um, you know, people who've done great harm, but who are also in general, like able to be very productive members of society, that it's it makes sense to devote some sort of resources to trying to redeem them. So financial crimes and things like that, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to there's hope for these people yet. Um, so sure, if you re- if you want to talk about certain things like that, I, I guess we could. I'm, I'm thinking of, again, pro- uh, hardcore property crimes against specific individuals and violence. You wouldn't support, I guess, like a death penalty sentence for all felonies. 
<laughs> I can't believe I asked that. Yeah, no, <laughs> right? I, I, I mean, you know, I don't have an itemized list that I keep in my head or otherwise of everything that's a felony. So I'm sure you could probably find some state law somewhere, some mopery law that declares something a felony that I'm like, well, you know, you, you get to live, uh, you know, lucky you, you are spared my wrath. Um, but no, I think the vast majority of things that are uh, felonies, um, you know, uh, there are certain things that I would say if this is your first time felony, or if you're, you know, 14 or 15 and you commit this felony, yeah, I, again, I'm with, uh, I, I am with Kulak on the expansion also of public corporal punishment to humiliate and temporarily hurt not only the body of these people, but also their dignity and their pride publicly to declare, you know, you are getting this in front of the whole world and we all get to watch you get your ass whipped and then you can go back uh, you know, at some point in the near future to your life, just don't fucking do it again. So yeah, not every penalty gets to death. Let's say Kyle Rittenhouse was found guilty. Would you support the death penalty for him? So yeah, so this is, well, so this is tough. Uh, this is actually interesting is what to do. And this is a larger conversation that I think might be very useful to have about how should people who are generally authoritarian, as as I think it's fair to say that I am, or at least have authoritarian sensibilities or instincts, how do we respond to when the state, whether because the people in charge have just gone like temporarily insane or have all bought into some absolutely hateful ideology, decide to persecute or or unfairly prosecute people that that I think are in the right. Again, I think that the odds of this are just dramatically lower than I think you two might think that they are. But Kyle Rittenhouse is a is a is a wonderful. I'm not even talking about odds. I'm just talking about the hypothetical. Yeah, right, right. So yeah, and Kyle Rittenhouse is obviously a wonderful example. And I, you know, I I did want to talk probably at some point about something like the COVID lockdowns, which um, I think Kulak and I at the very least, and I think Yassine. I don't know your take on them, but I, I predict it might be at least on the basic similar level to mine and Kulak's about like yeah, how do probably. we respond to when people pass laws that even the most authoritarian among us can look at that and go, yeah, that's that's unjust, that's bullshit, um, and nobody should be punished for that. And Kyle's a great example of that. But I don't know. The the answer to that is I I don't know. So just. Just so I can set the conversation. To to give the spoilers, you believe that Kyle Rittenhouse was rightfully acquitted, right? Oh, obviously, yes. Yeah. Without a shadow yeah. of the doubt. And so do I. And I <laughs> I don't even have to say Kulak obviously thinks the same too. So my uh I mean part of the justification of I guess not having an authoritarian government uh is that the government sometimes gets it wrong. And so this is kind of just like splitting the difference that we are not gonna continuously uh, impose the death penalty because it, we acknowledge that sometimes not only do we get it factually wrong, uh, like the person is actually factually innocent, or maybe this shouldn't have been a crime to begin with. Um, I would say, like I guess, like significant portion of uh, gun possession should not be cr- uh, criminalized. Uh, so part of it is just like splitting the difference. It's like okay, we're still going to prosecute it, but we're not going to impose the death penalty. You would disagree with that, right, Hoffmeister? Uh, so. My general take on policing is, uh, in addition to what I've said so far, I, I so Kulak had brought up uh, way back at the beginning that you know part of why policing is unjust is that it protects criminals from the public, and I agree that that is in fact one 
responsibility of the state is that we as as a public who want to avoid things like escalatory spirals of interpersonal revenge violence and things like that we agree to all uh allow the state to be the final arbiter the sovereign who declares you know whatever you guys think is the appropriate punishment for this we say this is the rule and you don't get to take out your own. Uh, if you think what happened to this guy should have been worse than what happened, too bad. We let you have that say. And even if that means the occasional, the state gets it wrong, I think that that's ultimately a sacrifice we have to make to avoid the sort of system that I think Kulak uh, is is uh, arguing for, or at least partially, of of again, mass interpersonal spirals of revenge violence among individuals. So uh, that, that gets to a point, um, a question that I had is if you, for example, if you think that there is no buy-in from communities that try to, co- that cooperate with police, and if you accept the premise that sometimes the government does get things wrong, then doesn't that justify the current system of not having the death penalty for all felonies? At least in part? Uh no, because again, I just think the vast majority of the time the state gets it right. Like again, okay. I, I I think the odds of being falsely accused of a crime and and falsely convicted, you might be falsely accused, but again, we have massive video surveillance that can establish where people were. It makes it very easy to establish, among other things, an alibi. We have DNA testing that can conclusively say, no, he could not have been the murderer because his DNA was not found on the scene, but some other guy was. Uh, So again, we have a ton of tools that we empower the state and the court system with to effectively ascertain the guilt of people. And I just just estimate the likelihood of, of an unjust conviction is just far lower than I think you guys do. But but you also acknowledge that their murder has a, a really embarrassingly low clearance rate. That can't right. just be from the fact that uh, witnesses are not willing to come forward. Because if they have they have all this DNA evidence, they have all this surveillance evidence, but they're still not able to solve crimes. So it's not just the testimony of witnesses that is missing. What I mean that implies that they get it something wrong. Well, no, but when you're talking about those specific types of murders, like let's say a gangland killing in inner city Baltimore, there's a scenario where DNA evidence is going to be hard to come by because you're talking about somebody getting shot at from a distance. So the police might find, say, bullet casings, and if they're able to then locate the gun later, either because they apprehend the shooter or they find the gun that he threw away, then they can you know, match the bullet casings to that gun. But there probably won't be a lot of DNA evidence because nobody had to get up close and personal to shoot some guy from down the street um, or walk up and cap him in the head. Um, so those are going to be tougher to ascertain guilt specifically because these are done in areas that either might not have the type of ubiquitous video surveillance that I'm talking about, or that by the nature of that specific type of crime, you're not going to have access to the foolproof data. But in that case, again, that's an area where the state is getting it wrong by failing to catch the guy who did it, not by wrongly accusing some guy who didn't do it. But that can that can be the same thing. Like I've had cases where they recover a firearm and they find four people's DNA on the gun. Like th- there is like 
DNA is reliable and it's it's helps solve a lot of crimes, but there's still a lot of ambiguity with it. Sure, but again, I'm thinking of it from the perspective of is a normal, functioning, taxpaying, productive citizen likely to be caught up in that? If I, you know, I don't know the specifics of like that, you know, the case that you have in mind here that you're talking about. Uh, uh, let's talk about a gun used in an illegal shooting again a gangland killing of somebody and you're talking about there are four people's dna on that gun or four people's fingerprints on that gun are are three of those four people like totally normal healthy productive people who happen to have handled that gun that was then used in a gangland shooting that seems dubious to me it seems possible but low probability okay cool like did you want to chime in on anything i was just going to say that um revenge cycles are not a fail state that um a society where there is an inherent tension between groups and some back and forth inherently is one that is favoring and creating selection pressures for competence and in-group coherence and intelligence. And that that is a very good thing. There's a very good reason that Northern Europe became the conqueror of the world and developed all the best technology of the past 500 years and was able to produce the civilization we enjoy today. And that's because they were locked in internal conflict and selection pressure to be better and stronger. The idea that, that we should have this universal nanny state to lock everyone down into mediocrity and, and lower functionality and to protect, protect basically the worst of us and the least functional of us from reprisal by the more competent and the more productive just seems completely backwards to me. And it's one of those accepted state monopoly on violence things that as soon as you have a monopoly, service decays. And that seems very obvious to me what happens, especially in light of the fact that police, the primary function of police now is to protect criminals from the public and the productive, as opposed to the other way around. Well, so cool. Like, actually, interestingly enough, and I, I that was one of the things that I had put into a, like our little document thingy where we brought up topics and stuff. Is that that actually I do feel is a genuinely strong argument against my position, um, and one that I, I ultimately don't um, I don't think it's a strong enough position to totally uh, you know defeat my my general position here. But yes, the idea that by um, by cracking down super hard on the portion of the population who are young, very high testosterone men with a proclivity and capability for interpersonal violence, that we are basically selecting out, I guess you could say, like what the Greeks might call thumos or thumos, uh, you know, that, that piss and vinegar, again, that capability for violence and, and masculine martial virtue, uh, and that an overweening police state, or I guess I wouldn't say nanny state, but I understand why Kulak does, um, that we are risking selecting out of the population a certain level of, uh, again, high capability, high testosterone men that, yeah, I do think uh, a society needs. Again, my solution is to actually employ those high functioning, high masculinity, high aggression, high testosterone men as the police officers to, <laughs> right? So I think that's that's how you square the circle is you make those guys the police, the ones who are cool with fucking guys up and getting into scraps and violence. 
you wield those guys against the gangsters and the criminals and the muggers and the robbers. That way I and the other people in the society who are not strongly capable of interpersonal violence aren't expected to or, or aren't required to. When we get into the sheepdog problem where you've you've selected violence and confidence and manly virtue out of the population, except for like this domesticated subset of people who have it specifically in the capacity that's only useful for the state and the institution. You wind up not with wolves, but with dogs. Correct. That is what I, that is exactly what I'm arguing for. Correct. And you've created a monoculture that is, that is separate from the population. And fundamentally you've separated capacity for like violence and manliness from ambition because fundamentally the most ambitious people in this society are not going to become police. They're going to become CEOs and build things. So you've inherently separated productivity and manliness and and competition from each other. Well, no, I, I would look at it uh, as the other way. You are selecting for public spiritedness. And I think the average police officer, or at least let's say, you know, we, we could talk about sort of like the type of people who become police in our trash world, degenerated society. But let's say, the type of people who became police officers in, in the mid 20th century in America were people who understood that they were never going to be president. They were never going to be a senator. They were never going to be a CEO of a company, but they understood that they had the ability in some small localized capacity to help protect the vulnerable in their society and to be, again, a weapon against uh, the sheepdog, if you will, against the wolves in our society. It's a very common meme among police officers. And I think that that's a good thing that you should be selecting for. The type of people who become CEOs are the opposite of the types of people who become police. Ambition, sure, ambition is useful for certain segments of the population. But for the vast majority of the population, people shouldn't be ambitious, I, I don't want uh, the majority of men in society actually to aspire to like massive personal glory or conquest or anything like that. I'm I'm perfectly happy living among society where 80 percent or more of men are are bug men like me. <laughs> yeah, when you get into a scenario where your leaders, your leaders and your CEOs are all womanly cowards, like. Like if you look at the 19th century and the glory days of, of highly functional European society, you had CEOs who were also colonels of regiments. You had you had kings who were also warriors. You had emperors who also led led military campaigns. You had presidents like Andrew Jackson, who like depending on your count, might have murdered 40 people in his life. That's that's what creates a great society is that the capacity for martial virtue is intertwined with all the vir- virtues that become the upper class of the society. That you deal with a bit more dueling and a bit more feuding, but you actually have greatness produced. Produced. Alexander led his troops from the from the very front of the cavalry charge. Charge. This is how you produce Western civilization. It, 
if you accept that, aside from like this domesticated sheepdog population, everyone's going to be bugmen. You slowly produce a feminized, decaying society that's inherently not going to conquer the stars and inherently going to be conquered by probably the very worst in society that you're coddling and nannying. Right. I, you know, I mean, again, I, I don't have a, I find your argument compelling, but insufficient. Um, you know, obviously we could go on about sort of larger models of like how societies become great and deal with greatness. I think that would require us to go a little far afield from topics specifically of policing, but I, I don't totally disagree with your take. I just, I ultimately think the trade-offs are worth it. Uh, so my, my question is, if you're going to select for uh, to recruit police officers from the most <laughs> male aggressive, uh, high T, two most, whatever, how do you prevent them? How do you ensure that they do a good job? How do you prevent, like, I guess, another gun trace task force from Baltimore from uh, existing again? I guess, I mean, obviously that's, you know, that's the, the toughest thing to, to square is you are stuck between, on the one hand, what I think a lot of uh, large, at least American and European, certainly the UK is dealing with this right now, moving towards like a very feminized, very bureaucratized police force, specifically because they're less likely to become uh, at least violent. They're certainly uh, power hungry in a lot of ways, but they're they're unlikely to shake me down on the on the street, you know, or or falsely arrest me for for something just so they can like beat the the tar out of me. Um, but then you do end up with, uh, like, for example, I, um, I don't think women should be beat cops at all. They're, they're not only incapable. And, and in fact, actually, if you want to avoid people getting shot by police, you should absolutely not want women to be beat cops because they're incapable overwhelmingly of, uh, of apprehending somebody physically who resists in any other way. If you get a beat cop who has to go and apprehend a large, aggressive man, her only option, she's not going to wrestle him to the ground. She's not going to do jujitsu on him to get him in cuffs. She's going to have to either tase him or shoot him. So in that sense, we need... It's probably like, the most misogynist view in that. I, I agree with you. Yeah, and look, I and I say this as someone, I would make a terrible cop. I'm a small guy. I've talked about it. And again, this is why I don't want to live in a society where I am expected to be responsible fully for my own self-defense. I just, I, again, short of carrying a gun with me everywhere I go, which comes with its own problems and for society at large, if we have everybody armed at all times. Again, Kulak, I think, would probably disagree. But I think that's a, a if not a failure state, we're getting in dangerous territory there. If I'm not going to carry a gun with me at all times, I cannot be responsible for defending myself physically against men who have, you know, spent their entire life doing nothing but getting into fights and using violence on other people. Um, so I need stronger men who are capable of interpersonal violence to do that job for me. I, there, I don't have another choice here. Um, I'm not going to, at a, in my 30s, suddenly become like a karate black belt and able to defend myself without shooting somebody. Um, so uh, we, you need a police force that is able and comfortable with, has both the capability and the proclivity of being able to mete out hardcore uh, violence 
against, a, again, a certain portion of the population who doesn't know anything but violence. They can't be persuaded. They can't be reasoned with. Somebody has to take them out. And if it's not going to be the police, it's going to be, again, somebody, a marshal or a, a bounty hunter or whatever it may be, somebody who's high T and physically aggressive is going to have to eventually physically restrain these guys and do violence against them. If it's not beat cops, it's going to be somebody else who fills the same function. Right. But the, the perennial uh, counter argument to more authoritarianism is how do you, how do you keep it constrained? How do you ensure that it, it's like benevolent dictatorship? Of course. Uh, and I guess I would just say that we have examples, not only throughout history, but in the modern world of states that manage to strike a decent balance. The, the slope is not, in fact, like inherently what? slippery. Look at Singapore. Singapore is a wonderful place to live. They're hardcore authoritarians. They they will, uh, I, I believe they execute drug dealers. Uh, they Again, they use hardcore corporal punishment. Uh, they're very famously caning and things like that. Uh, so they have a, a, what you know a lot of people of, of I guess you guys sort of natural inclination might consider authoritarian, and yet by all accounts, unless you're a criminal, it appears to be a wonderful place to to live. The same could be said of Japan or South Korea or a number of these East Asian countries that don't have this this hardcore fear or paranoia about authoritarianism. They're much more communitarian societies with. Uh, a higher degree of comfort with an overweening state. And again, these are low violence societies, low crime. They're just great places to live for the vast majority of people. I want that for the country that I live in. I think that's a fair characterization of Singapore and Japan. I'm not familiar enough with South Korea. What? Why do you think that they don't have the same levels of police on civilian violence that we see in the United States? Uh, because they are in general, and maybe it's because of exactly what Kulak's talking about, that like all the really high tea piss and vinegar martial guys got wiped in World War II, uh, or they became Yakuza and got arrested forever or whatever. I don't know enough about the history of that in Japan, but that to a certain level, they, Japan is a lower testosterone society than America or Europe, to say nothing of the rest of the parts of the world, uh, the average Japanese man does have lower testosterone than the average American or Canadian white man, and certainly far lower than the average uh, black man. Um, and again, that comes with certain trade-offs. It comes with a certain, again, much more... So, but, say, but it doesn't sound like you need high testosterone to implement, uh, implement this uh, uh, law and order. Well, but uh, those police officers are system, going right? up against lower T men as well. Japanese police could not hack it against inner city Baltimore. They, they, they don't have the mindset or the tools. Uh, and they're, they would have to uh, either completely change their mindset to be far more willing to use violence or they just be steamrolled. Like we're, that's the thing is American police are just up against a vastly different demographic uh, picture than European police or East Asian police. You know, Euros love to point to how much more violent American police are than European police. Look what American police are dealing with compared to what Europe is. Again, not just demographically, but also, again, how many people have firearms, how many firearms are circulating around in the population. Japan is not up against that. They're not up against a situation where they're dealing with a huge number of people who either are armed or could potentially be armed or are willing and able to use like violent resistance at any time. That's just not the case 
by and large in, in East Asia. Okay, fair enough. I, I want to make sure that you have the uh, opportunity to ask me questions. I think you put up a lot of good questions and I want you to be as, as poignant, uh, sorry, as pointed as you want. Yeah, well, I, I guess first off, and I've wanted to sort of pick your brain about this for a while, because you're obviously a smart guy and, and a self-aware guy who, you know, you seem aware of your own mind and you question your own opinions on things. And so I am sort of very interested in how you conceive of your own profession and your own role within the criminal justice system as a defense attorney. Like I said, I think of I think that the vast majority of what our court system is currently doing can basically be scrapped. The vast majority of people are just obviously guilty. It is not at all difficult to ascertain their guilt. And certainly that's part of why the vast majority of criminal proceedings in this country result in a guilty plea instead of a jury trial. And and certainly even a lot of things that go to trial just shouldn't. And there are so many protections and so many loopholes and resources that we avail criminals of to essentially escape the righteous punishment that should be meted out to them. And you are part of that system trying to get guilty people to not be sentenced to the punishments that they should be sentenced to. Do you disagree with that characterization? Because I see, and again, it's nothing against you personally. I have no no issues with you personally, Yassine, but I see the vast majority of defense attorneys and the things that you do inherently as parasitic on on our society and on the criminal justice system. What, what do you mean by parasitic? You, that a more healthy criminal justice system would not avail any of these criminals with the opportunity, I guess, to even defend themselves and to waste everybody's time with trying to weasel out of what's coming to them. And you are there to help them get out of what ought to be coming to them, to to nitpick and find little loopholes and little technicalities to try and lessen what should be maximum punishments. I, I did explain like how, how useless I am uh, in my essay, 11 magic words, how useless I am in my job because there, in the vast majority of cases, my clients are guilty of the thing they're accused of doing. The evidence against them is overwhelming and there's not much I can do. I can, I'm there to basically just like kick up a, a dust storm and hope that the confetti in the air distracts enough. Right. So what is the point of that? And do you think it's good if you, if the dust storm that you kicked up successfully uh, works. Do, do you think that's a good thing that I should uh, I should be happy that you did that? Yeah, there, there's two ways to answer that. One is like my personal motivation. For me, I think a significant portion of the penalties that are imposed uh, in, for crimes in the United States are just ridiculously high. They're, they're disproportionately high and they're not the correct tool to deal with uh, uh, societal problems. I've outlined uh, multiple instances where, for example, DUIs prosecution doesn't really make sense because the goal is you want to have less less people drive drunk, uh, and that can be done other ways than just like se- threatening people to send uh, uh, people to prison for like months or at a time. Uh, driving possession uh, driving crimes are also don't make sense to enforce criminally. Like if your license gets suspended because you just don't have enough money to pay for tickets, that becomes a crime that is punished by a jail. I don't think that makes sense. A lot of drug crimes, I doesn't hurt anyone. The The problem is the secondary effect of property crimes where people are stealing shit, burgling uh, to feed their habit. And the, the way to deal with it is 
my solution is just give them free drugs. That's a easier, uh, that's a more efficient way of dealing with the property crime than than threatening this uncertain amount of punishment. So that's part of my own personal motivation. Uh, the the reason I exist within the system is an acknowledgement that sometimes the, the government gets it wrong. And so I'm the precaution to protect against that. But are there scenarios where you you sort of recognize that your the arguments you're making or the loopholes that you're trying to exploit are against the spirit of the proceedings and you have to make arguments that you yourself if you were in the judge's position would not be persuaded by simply because you have to make some sort of argument to try and defend your client so i i would actually like to defend uh public defenders and lawyers of the guilty here just because um the way the justice system works is the full set of criminal trial in that process basically never happens. What happens is is the two two sides stand off against each other, um, make a show, and then come to some negotiation that saves them everyone massive amounts of resources and effort. So Yassim's job is basically basically because it's an adversarial system to negotiate on behalf of his client based on on legal precedent or whatnot. And that seems entirely legitimate and entirely necessary. And, and like, court actually getting a result where, where the sentence does somewhat match what would be appropriate given, given how much obscene leniency has been given into the system with regards to sentencing and discretion of prosecutors and tons of stuff like that where even if you think all of Yassine's clients are 100% guilty, the fact that they have someone negotiating for them, that's generally the part of any any process, and that's how civil trials trials work, even, even if, um, you know, you have, have someone dead to rights when you sue them that they should owe you 10 mil billion dollars, it's generally more functional if they have a, a lawyer who's going to defend their interests because then the negotiations will happen more quickly and more efficiently and less of less resources will be wasted in the middle of the battlefield. Yeah, so that's part of the answer is that I am characterized as an agent. I can I'm there in large part to convey the requests of my client. I don't when I say something in court, I don't I don't necessarily speak personally. I, I'm just saying my client wants to do this, and here's the argument to support his uh, uh, his position. And you know, you could characterize that in some ways as mercenary. Um, to answer your question about making arguments, I don't necessarily believe in. I, I was trying to think of instances where that would apply. The first thing that came to mind is just, I guess, uh, what would be considered suppression motions, where. The cops conducted an illegal search, and the remedy there is they're not allowed to use any of the evidence collected. That usually kills the case. You know, like if they find a gun that in a glove box in a car that they weren't even allowed to search, that's the that's the punishment for them. Okay, too bad. You can't use any of the evidence. It's an imperfect remedy, but it works. Uh, my, I would support that. I support the remedy because that's the way to ensure that cops aren't just kicking in doors and searching whatever they want and in the hopes of finding something. 
Well, look, so obviously there's there's a hypothetical scenario, sure, where police are, are just randomly going door to door, uh, kicking in the doors of random citizens, hoping to find uh, signs of illegal crime. Um, again, I think we... we uh, That's not a hypothetical. That, that happens in several countries. That has happened historically. Uh, and that correct. was explicitly the reason for the Fourth Amendment. Uh, right. So the problem that you get, first off, is that Again, in our society, that would actually be pointless um, because the vast majority of people don't have anything illegal or interesting to find. But put that aside, the other problem we have is that I see the mid-20th century uh, jurisprudence, especially the Warren Court, as creating a ton of new hurdles that police have to clear that would not historically have been recognized. Like they created a bunch of new Fourth Amendment violations out of thin air uh, and new loopholes that can be used to get people out of prosecution because, oh, the police, they they failed. They, they didn't cross all their I's and dot all their T's. I understand defending against this hypothetical slippery slope down the road authoritarian panopticon state, but I don't think we're anywhere close to living in that state. And for example, things like a suppression motion where the police, uh, you know, accidentally or on purpose or through some middle ground where they just, in the heat of the moment, somebody opened a glove box they shouldn't have and they find an illegal gun or a, a severed head or, uh, you know, 800 milligrams of black tar heroin or whatever again i i do see your role as essentially parasitic as saying yes 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 we all agree that the severed head was indeed in the glove box Mm -hmm. but we have to pretend that it wasn't and that nobody found it because the police broke a rule or something i'm sorry if you have a severed head in your glove box something's going to happen to you and i don't care i frankly just can't bring myself to care about the the steps uh, and the series of events that took place to result in that being found, like you're still so, guilty. So, what should be the punishment for the police, or how do you disincentivize them from just kicking doors down and finding well, I, to look for sure. whatever? You could later fire the the police officer who did that. You could reprimand them. You could dock their pay. There's any number of things you could do to them besides throwing out the case. Those two things are, uh, to me, totally unrelated. I, I was going to say, so in Europe, they do it very differently. Um, in Europe, basically, any evidence that comes forward is always admitted. But the thing is, it's assumed in Europe that, in most European countries, that an illegal police search will fall, be followed by criminal pers- prosecution of the police officers who did it because they committed a property crime by illegally entering someone's, someone's home or car, etc., that they'd be charged with trespass and potentially assault and other other things, which there's a very good reason why that doesn't happen in the U.S. because the U.S. it's so much more kinetic that basically half your police would be going to prison fairly regularly for um, <laughs> interaction. Like every time the U.S. police just got it wrong, it's like, oh, you searched someone who wasn't who didn't have grounds to search. Okay, that's physical assault. Oh, you fought up their pants. Pants? That's sexual assault. Oh, you search your their car. Okay, that's breaking and entering. Like, like you very quickly get into a situation where like 
double-digit percentages of American police are going to prison for, like, 10 years or longer for, like, bodily and property crimes against the population by either searching people they didn't have a right to search or um, physically assaulting people they didn't have a right to physically assault. And my argument is that we shouldn't have police. That's what should happen, that if you break into someone's house to search them and, like, like had no right to do it, and you find, like, they committed a, a murder, and so they should be charged with murder, you should be charged with breaking and entering, that there shouldn't be this category of people who are designated special sacred enforcers of the state who get more rights and whose crimes get excused whenever they committed, like, bodily or property crimes are just, oh, oopsie. Oopsie, but there's a very good reason why suppression motions exist, which is that the the U.S. system would collapse if you actually charged police with every crime they commit whenever they slightly step over the bounds and then they like pin someone to the ground and arrest them. They didn't have the right to arrest for or break into someone's property. They don't have the right to break break in for like very quickly America would not have police if you didn't have suppression motions and actually just had to treat that as a criminal matter. Yeah. The, the way, I don't know how accurate it is, but the way that Kulak describes the European system, I would be fine with that. Uh, there's nothing, I guess, like constitutionally mandated about having only suppression remedy be the only remedy to a violation of uh, search and seizure. That just, uh, I'm just saying that's such what we have. It, it does lead to some absurd scenarios where uh, I don't know if they ever found the severed herd, but where they, the whole point, the only remedy that you have is, uh, okay, you, you found evidence of a crime, but you're not legally allowed to use it. The other problem is it, it doesn't give any recourse to someone that is factually innocent, innocent unless they file a you know Section 1983 civil lawsuit for the violation, which is going to have a bunch of hurdles. The only remedy that you that is typically deployed is if you are charged with a crime. So if you're you know the subject of an illegal search, but they don't find anything. Well, too bad. Fuck you. Like you pay for your own door or whatever. So I, I agree that there's a problem. Uh, I was just, I only pointed that out as a way uh, to think of, I guess, like what are some arguments that I don't believe in? Um, there's a bunch that I don't believe in. Like I, I hate drunk drivers. I especially hate uh, people that can do hit and runs. I find that just deplorable, uh, but I still defend uh, my clients just because my role is so limited. It's not an endorsement of their action. It's more, hey, government, I just want to make sure that you're doing this right. So you would not say that you have ever, through your own actions as a defense attorney, allowed or or created a situation where somebody escaped punishment that you actually think in your heart of heart was coming to them? Uh, When you say coming to them, you mean deserved? Yes, that that would have been appropriate in a, in an, in an ideal world that they should have had a more severe punishment meted out to them than what actually was due to your actions and your contributions. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I'm sure I have. I'm sure I've had some effect on on my cases. I probably can think I would cite probably the hit and run where the way I characterized uh I the way I negotiated the plea uh reduced his uh liability for something that he clearly committed. And how do you feel about that? Do you feel like that's a, a necessary evil and a small enough part of the old, you know, over the overall contribution you've made 
in your capacity as a defense attorney, do you feel like that was ultimately worth it because the vast majority of people you defend got the sentence that you think was appropriate? Or how do you think about that? Because again, I that to me sounds inherently... I just see it as not my responsibility. The There's a sort of contract in place. I don't want to say a social contract, but there's an understanding where if the government wants to deploy its resources, wants to deploy its authority and seeks to imprison someone for however many years, it has to follow rules. That's the, that's the I guess, like the uh, corral that we place the government in. And it has to abide by those rules. And my role is just to make sure that the government stays within those, those rules. That's not what, that's not the most ideal system that I would design if I had uh, you know, free reign if I was a dictator and was able to snap my fingers and determine what that would be. So I'm just operating within an imperfect system that I would have significant changes to. Well, so so obviously a lot of what influences my thinking about policing and a lot of why I've gotten to this point and why I've become so hardcore about this stuff is just because of how sick and tired I am of seeing these endless examples of people with rap sheets the length of my arm who have been committing crimes since they were old enough to to walk in some cases you know they they've been committing crimes since middle school and somehow they keep getting let out the judge and it could be lenient judges that seems to be a huge amount of it is basically People, judges who are at their heart something approaching prison abolitionists, or at the very least, are so soft-hearted that they should have no role. They they should be as far away from our criminal justice system as possible in my ideal world. That are letting these people off easy. It could be again lame prosecutors refusing to prosecute or prosecuting these sort of just a limitation of the system. Because, I mean, the, the, the thing I want to remind you of is the United States has the highest incarceration rate of the world. So let's say you want to double that. I'm sure that's probably too well, I want to, for remember, I want to Remember, I want instead of incarceration, they should be publicly executed or, or made. Right. And the problem is that that penalty is not very popular. And a significant portion, I think, a significant reason for that is because of how often people have gotten it wrong. And so there is this calculus, even if it's a small portion. No, I think that I, I do not think that's remotely true. I think the actual number, the actual percentage of people who have been committed, uh, who have been convicted of serious crimes who are innocent, especially, again, in the modern era, the era of DNA and wide video surveillance is way lower than what the average person thinks it, thinks it is. Again, that was back at the beginning. I said part of the reason well, why that might, that might be true off. but but what i said was the reason why the death penalty is not very popular is because of how often the government has gotten it wrong no maybe that has changed maybe that has people think i'm sorry it's, that's that's what i'm saying is that people believe erroneously that the government has been getting it wrong far more often than it actually has again even you think of something like the uh, the Innocence Project, which you know purports to be really you know uh, exonerating all these people through DNA evidence. 
it's not that many people. And in fact, in a, a lot of what's actually happening is the opposite is, is DNA evidence is now allowing people to secure criminal convictions against people who were acquitted or who, you know, could not successfully be prosecuted 50 years ago because there wasn't enough evidence at the time. And now we have the DNA evidence to solve these cold cases and apprehend people like these serial killers because now we have DNA evidence. So uh, we, but, we, but, but your your objection here is you said people don't support the death penalty because of what they think is the wrongful um, the error rate, right? Correct. And again, I think they and they imagine themselves in the position of being wrongly accused. Okay, but, but, let me just say one thing. Uh, but they, you and the these hypothetical hypothetical people that you could have it the same understanding of what the error rate actually is, but they would have a different, they would place a different weight on it and say, this is too high. Right. Right. right? One of the things that I, I had want to talk about, uh, however, briefly, because I know we're running long, there's this aphorism that's just taken as just obviously morally true. And it's this wise adage, uh, at least in America, I can't speak to other countries, this idea that I would rather, a thousand guilty men go free, then one innocent man be punished. And this just seems batshit to me. This this just seems obviously specious reasoning. This is just bad reasoning. First off, because, again, people just arbitrarily pick some number. Some people might say it's better that a hundred guilty men go free than one uh, innocent man be convicted. And other people might say a thousand. But surely... Everyone could agree that at some point that number gets high enough that the trade-off is worth it. Would anybody actually say, I would rather 100 million guilty men go free than one innocent man be punished? They, they really wouldn't take that trade-off. And again, they're... It's, it's just a conversation about like what you're willing to tolerate. By the way, it's, it's called Blackstone's Ratio. It's from this uh, judge in England. William Blackstone, he, and he actually said it's better to t let 10 guilty men uh, escape than one innocent suffer. All right. Uh, his so that's number was a little bit more reasonable. 10, 10, <laughs> we can talk. All right, Blackstone. I, I, he, Blackstone and I can talk. I've never heard of anyone say 100 guilty men go free. I oh, mean, maybe I they it, exist, I but I, I haven't heard it. Oh, I, I hear it all the time. I've, I've talked to many many people about criminal justice issues. Um, you know, I've talked okay. before about how I, I, I believe that see. some people uh, believe that I'm just saying that the actual ratio is 10 to one. And it's just going to be a matter of what do you find to be more detestable? Uh, I find it detestable when someone guilty of a crime that I find heinous goes, uh, evades punishment. I find that detestable as a public defender. I also find it extremely detestable when someone completely innocent faces punishment for something they didn't do or for something that they did that shouldn't have been a crime. So right. it's just a matter of balancing, like, what do you find worse? And it's a matter of stacking it up. So, I mean, 10 to one is like one number, you know, that's one ratio that it's not inviolate. It's not etched in obsidian. It can be something different. So it, it's, there's nothing objective about it. You know what I mean? You can't just like prove to people that this is the right, uh, this is the right moral outrage. Well, but what, but again, what you can do is actually present to them objective data about how many people who are innocent are actually being convicted. There is like objective data here and we can, we can examine the likelihood of an innocent person being convicted of a serious crime and we can talk about again 
in the era of DNA testing and mass video surveillance, how actually likely is it that a that an innocent person will be falsely convicted? Of course, it can happen. And, and yes, I accept that it will happen. I just, again, think it is wildly less probable than the average person, I think, imagines that it is because I think their brains have been poisoned by media narratives that are not remotely based in truth and are actually actively dishonest. There's actually two possibilities. One is that they have an an erroneous uh, notion of how many innocent people are actually executed, or maybe they're just operating on a different Blackstone's ratio, right? Sure. Yes. And, And obviously, like I said, part of my my role, my little tiny corner of the internet where I have any uh, ability to affect anything is to try and move the needle on people's perception and their instincts around this, even a, a infinitesimally small amount to try to eventually move us toward a society where people have a far more clear-minded and hard-headed uh, take and, and, and philosophy around these issues and and obviously another part of what we have okay okay but there's there's a a notion of like uh correcting erroneous assumptions but what if they still disagree with your ratio right well again uh like i said there there will be there's a tipping point where enough powerful and important people start believing something and the rest of the population basically just decides that they believe that uh, that, that's how we've gotten to this point. The The average American 100 years ago was far closer to my uh, attitude on policing than the average American now. And that was partially because, again, they didn't have these media narratives, these pro-criminal media narratives, these criminal apologist narratives being, you know, thrust into their brains 24-7 and being shamed into accepting things that are are not true, but also because powerful people, people with influence, believed in something closer to my take on criminal justice. And at a certain point, that tipping point flipped the other way. And enough powerful Do you recognize that part of it is a negotiation? So, I mean, 100 years ago, it was criminally illegal to advocate against World War One, like you could go to prison for decades if you said, "Hey, maybe the United States." I'm not pro Shank. That the case you're talking about, the shouting fire in a crowded theater case, that was garbage. I agree. Or you know, if you were gay, uh, that was a criminal act. I don't know. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if you would support that, and I actually don't care. But there, there's this. Uh, there's different uh, offenses that were uh, criminally uh, punished by serious prison time. So you can see it as a negotiation between different cor- portions of the society where some portions say this shouldn't even be a crime and they don't have a chance of uh, making it legal outright. So they instead advocate for reduce uh, prison sentence or maybe getting rid of the death penalty, you know, things like that. So I, I guess like I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly how you, how you see everyone kind of following lockstep behind you. Well, I one wonderful uh, development, and this actually dovetails nicely with another thing that I wanted to discuss with you, or at least bring up, is that a lot of people in America are finally starting to have the wool dropped from their eyes about 
Black Lives Matter and about the psyop that has been perpetrated on them for a decade now. Uh, you know, I think that Americans did not, they'd had their defense mechanisms against these narratives slowly chipped away by, again, a, a, multi, a multi-decade attempt by the media and by uh, influencers within our culture to wear away their defense mechanisms against lies, essentially, about policing. Okay, can, you, can you be more specific? Be, be specific no, no. when you say PSYOP, right, so, when you say lies. Yeah. So Black Lives Matter essentially convinced Americans that there is a mass epidemic of unjust targeted police violence against unarmed, innocent black men. That was never true. It never has been true in America. It wasn't true during the lynching era. And it sure as hell is not true now. It's, it's the opposite of what is happening in this country. Could not be farther. It kind of depends what your threshold would be for what you would consider to be uh, obscene or extreme, right? Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, the numbers have been out there and available, readily available for those who are looking uh, for them for as long as I've been looking into this. Uh, the average year in America, somewhere between like eight to 12 quote unquote unarmed black men are killed by police. Of those, some portion of them uh, were actually, you might say they were unarmed in the sense they didn't have a firearm on them, but some of them may have been, you know, in a scuffle with a police officer grabbing for the officer's gun that, that, you know, we might count it. Some of them might be, some of them had guns. Some of them might be just holding a stick or whatever, a phone. Trying to look like he's holding a, no, a right. gun. I, so I don't want to get like, into like yeah. the details, uh, like the totally. specific details. Right. But uh, again, there's this very roughly a thousand. There, there's roughly, I think we can agree, there's, I think, police kill roughly a thousand people every year, right? Correct. Over 99% of whom it was justified. According, I mean, that's, <laughs> according to whom? Well, I, I, so we have to allow police some ability to defend themselves and to escalate a force continuum, right? We we sure, have to allow how, who determines what's justified. Uh, I mean, we have independent bodies that investigate these things and determine the guilt and the justification of police. Again, you and I probably disagree wildly on the righteousness of the judgments that are made by these investigative bodies. And I would I, disagree with how independent they are because sure. I mean, yeah, but the, the point is. I, I, we can agree on the objectives. Like there's a thousand people dead. There's going to be some debate over how many are justified. Uh, some debate over how many are armed versus are unarmed, but you can still consider it a problem. And I'm also acknowledging that a significant portion of BLM supporters, they had, when you ask them how many people, how many black men are killed by police, they'll say something insane, like 10,000 a year, which, you know, if you think about it for just five seconds, it doesn't make any sense. I agree with that, that there's like ludicrously delusional takes from that side. But in terms of determining what is an, ex what should this be a problem? Should this be a matter of concern? That's necessarily going to be subjective, no? Yes, but it's subjective over a substrate of objective data. Again, if people have wildly okay. delusional ideas about the objective underlying reality, their subjective aesthetic judgments are worthless. Okay, I agree I agree with you. But if someone if someone agrees with the numbers that you have and still comes to the same conclusion, 
that's that's feasible, right? Yeah, but I just don't think the vast majority of people would actually reach that conclusion uh, if they were aware of the objective data. Some some might. Again, you guys, I think both have a sort of like natural aesthetic revulsion against the state and against like, you know, you, you have these these instincts against tyranny and things like that that are valid. And I understand where you're coming from, but I don't share your aesthetics. And I, I again, I don't think most people do, or at least they wouldn't okay. if they were presented with the objective reality. Yeah, but okay, I understand your position. That's that's essentially like an empirical test. Uh, I can't prove it one way or the other, but I understand it. Go on. So this is, I think, where we would run into problems where if the state were to start adopting my uh, approach to criminal justice too quickly, or it would get ahead of where public opinion is. So you know, let's say that I uh, magically am um, a dictator tomorrow. Again, I don't want this. I, I want to make clear to everybody, again, cannot stress uh, enough. I do not want to be a dictator. I'm far too lazy uh, for this, far too indolent. I would not make a good dictator. Okay, that's uh, enough disclaimers. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> but again, uh, I, have, I can magically wave a wand tomorrow. Maybe I'm not dictator, but I, I, I magically wave a wand and make my favorite uh you know, law and order, I, I will judge dread into existence and he begins executing criminals. Basically, what would have to happen is we would have to start by only executing white criminals. Um, and again, even though that represents a very small overall portion of the people convicted of very, very serious violent crimes, like less than half of the people uh, convicted of violent crimes, we would have to because the optics of let's say reinstituting public hanging, which I'm very supportive of and which I want very badly to reinstate public execution by hanging. Cannot stress this enough. Want it. That would be a great thing. But the first time that that gets done to a black murderer, the first time that gets done to a black criminal, the optics of that, if that were to happen tomorrow, white America by and large is not ready for that. There's a guilt complex, this visceral, guilt that so many white Americans still have about the history of race relations in this country about, you know, they would, they would, it would conjure images of lynching in their minds and they would freak out and they'd get so squeamish about it. That's why black lives matter was able to succeed in this like obviously dishonest and malicious psyop is white Americans have this, these hangups about race. What's dishonest. Can you be more specific about what's dishonest? Uh, again, I, I mean, you and I agree that Black Lives Matter is openly pushing extremely false, not only false numbers, they're just lying uh, about, again, this epidemic of police killings of unarmed black men and just counting on nobody to call their bluff, right? Are you disputing that Black Lives Matter did push those those narratives? I don't, I don't know. It's hard to pin it down. And I'm not trying to evade the question. You're more than welcome to follow up. It's hard to pin down exactly what BLM believes. Uh, you could talk to the, I guess, like the three main founders and ask them. Uh, but there's all these kind of like, uh, there's, there was a cottage industry in the 2020 of everyone kind of starting their own BLM uh, nonprofit and soliciting for donations because they knew that there was a shit ton of money flying around. So it's hard to pin down exactly what quote unquote BLM believes because of all these kind of disputing uh, fiefdoms that have sprung up. Uh, I agree. I need to know exactly like what claim that, you know, BLM, quote unquote, has made that was dishonest. You say narrative, but that's necessarily going to be uh, viewed through the prism of like subjective 
judgment? Like, what do you consider to be a big enough problem? I think most of your position is they've exaggerated the issue. It's not that big of a deal, right? Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, and- but, but someone looking at the same numbers that you have, that are, you know, objective and real could come to a different conclusion. So it's not as, I don't, doesn't sound like as grand slam as you make it out to be. Well, but again, I, my, I interject. yeah, Kula, go ahead. So I'm going to push back on this entire racial dynamic thing. The, the great story of the past 150 years, there were about 5,000 lynchings in, in the entire, entire Jim Crow era, post-Civil War, whereas if you look at the interracial homicide rates, there's been almost hundreds of thousands of white Americans murdered by Af- African Americans. This narrative of, of white guilt and, oh, we have to be especially sensitive to black crime rates. No, we don't. Uh, people will be shocked at that I'm the one one who's saying no, go go hard on this, or that um, I'm the one extensively pushing back against this um, racial sensitivity dynamic. But this has been one of the major problems of American life: is that white America in the 1960s basically suffered ethnic cleansing under racial violence being driven by from the cities, white flight, who's chasing them? Them that that cities that were incredible monuments of American life, Baltimore, Detroit, Milwaukee, St. Louis, were destroyed by the utter collapse in in law enforcement and civil order, in large part because the populations were prevented from defending themselves against the mass of racial violence and rioting that was enacted, as well as state-backed ethnic programs carried out throughout the school system. Uh, I recommend reading Race War in High School, Left Behind in Rosedale. The U.S. state has used race as a way to enact ethnic programs against its population and crush the productive classes of America and prevent them from organizing against the New Deal and new taxes. And this has been one of the major problems of the American police state is that it's used specifically to enable racial crime by blacks against whites. And this has been an ongoing factor of American life. So this idea that that, oh, we need authoritarian policing and we need to specifically impose it against the slim, slim minority of, of white ultra-violent criminals to have sensitivity and to work our way up, up to finally maybe one day public punishing the 13% who commit 50% of homicides. That seems insane and completely at odds with what... America's violent crime problem is. There's a reason America does not have, like, the crime rates of Western Europe in, like, the 1980s. And it's a demographic problem. Oh, look, obviously I'm in complete, full agreement with everything you've just said, except, I I guess, I would dispute the part that, like, this is the police state's fault. But everything else you've said is absolutely true. And again, if I had my druthers... uh, 
the the 13% that you're talking about that does 52, they're all purged like day one of my criminal justice regime. They're they're gone, they're put to the the sword immediately and with great gusto. Like that's uh you and I are in total lockstep on that. Uh you want to rephrase that. You don't want to purge the 13%. You the specifically oh, yeah. the criminals. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Five percent to to whatever that does the actual fifty-two percent of the crime. Not thank you. Was that a Freudian slip, Hoffmeister? No, thank you, Kulak, for saving for saving me from my own uh, my own uh, poor phrasing. Yes, I want to stress, and I did say at the beginning that (laughs) the the, the problem is a is point one to point five percent of the population that's responsible for. All the crime, it's not the, the demographic itself, aside from the fact that, that the de- demographic that, that 0.1 to 0.5 is a subset tends to deeply oppose policing that 0.1 to 0.5. Correct, correct, yes. And, and again, I did say, you know, at the beginning... The portion, the percentage of the population in most countries that is the the criminal class of the population is an extremely small sliver of the population. I think I was reading recently that the NYPD uh, has determined that like 80% of the crime in New York City is committed by, I think, a couple hundred people, a couple hundred specific identifiable individuals that if if the nypd were to round these people up it might it might be like a couple thousand i I can't remember the exact i was looking for the article and i couldn't find it it's a very small again we're talking about in a a city of nine million people or whatever new york has we could round those people up and again the police know who the vast majority of these people are and could round them up if they could find them and apprehend them tomorrow could round them up let's say they rounded them up either permanently imprison them killed them, burnt them at the stake, uh, fired them into space, whatever you, whatever you want, crime in New York City would drop by uh, an order of magnitude, would drop 80%. This, is this, this trend is true all over America. A tiny percentage of the population. This, I'm not advocating mass genocide against poor people who are stealing bread to feed their families. That's never been, that's a myth. I am advocating a, a purge of hardcore repeat offending criminals who have demonstrated that they are incapable of living among us. Yes. I do not want 13% of the American population uh, executed. Uh, we, we could start with 1% and figure it out from there. I think 1% would go a long, long way. I'm glad that some members of our audience are breathing a little easier after that disclaimer. <laughs> yes, thank thank you, Kulak. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Hoffmeister, you had, a, I think, a question for me. Or well, we're talking about like BLM and it. I guess like the lie, the psyop, etc. I, I I think we've like hashed that hashed out as much as we can. So go ahead. Well, no, I, I mean, I think we have because you had. I was just interested because you yourself had posted a thing recently where you described why you no longer call yourself a police abolitionist or support defunding the police, and you had said yep. at the end that you, even after all that, you still basically support everything that BLM supports. Which again, you, you and I both agree that there are 
what you mean by BLM is very much uh, in the eye of the beholder. There's the sane washed sort of laundered version of the BLM platform that was laundered through media organizations to try and sell white people on it. The real BLM, the the core, again, the, the three founders of BLM, Patrice Cullors and the other two, they're hardcore Marxist police abolitionists. They always have been. If you read any of their actual rhetoric of what they themselves have said, and if you logic it out even a little bit, that's the only logical conclusion of everything they personally have said about policing. They are communist, openly, again, openly identifying Marxist police abolitionists. There's no way the American people could be sold on police abolition. So instead, they had to receive this sane washed version, this adulterated version of what BLM, what Black Lives Matter is, that like squeamish white liberals could be sold on that does not resemble what the actual boots on the ground BLM activists want, which was police abolition. Yeah, I agree. There's a severe disconnect between what the boots on the ground want and uh, how much this issue has been sane washed. I wrote about this in my essay, uh, Defunding My Mistake, where I acknowledge uh, how much my opinion has changed from years prior. And to be more specific about what you said, I never said I support all of BLM's uh, positions. I said I, I support their policy positions. I'm specifically linked to uh, Campaign Zero, which I think came out in 2016, I believe. And it outlined some concrete policy proposals Things like, you know, independent investigations and prosecutions so that you don't have the police investigating itself. You don't have the prosecutors who have a professional relationship with the police investigating and choosing to prosecute the police, uh, you know, filming the police. That that has basically been solved uh, in that the courts have largely recognized a strong uh, First Amendment right to f- uh, film and monitor the police. Uh, ending policing for profit, things like, uh, you know, small municipalities that make something like 50% of their budget just from court fines and traffic fines or things like uh, civil forfeiture, uh, significantly reducing the impact of that. Uh, demilitarization I'm in favor of as well. There's there's also, there's all sorts of aspects of there that I still support. So just to be more specific, I, I never said I support all of BLM because I don't know what all of BLM believes. I do support and still support uh, the campaign zero policy proposals. All right, that's a that's a bit more reasonable, and I think you and I are probably in <laughs> more agreement than you might imagine in terms of some of those more moderate, reasonable police reforms. I'm I'm not uh, I, I'm not 100% across the board uh, inherently pro police all the time. Everything every police officer does, I uh, I would say it's fair to say I back the blue. Uh, you know, if, if you want to use that phrase, but yes, police are obviously. Uh, both capable and uh, incentivized in certain scenarios toward uh, overreach and corruption, which can be reined in by a lot of these more reasonable proposals that will not actually involve anything remotely close to defunding the uh, to defunding them, let alone abolishing them. Yeah, and I will say right. once again abolish the police. A free people are their own police. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kulak. Uh, always great to have you on board. <laughs> All right. Uh, should we cut it off there? Anything else? Did we do introductions? I feel like I like half the time I forget to plug myself. Uh, yeah, I'm Kulak. I'm. You can follow me on Twitter as CatGirlKulak, or you can follow me on Substack at Narconomicon. All right. <laughs> Please put that in your spreadsheet.
to see how well it works. Well, I've got to wait till the day that the episode comes out. But yes, that will go in my spreadsheet as a note, and I will see if it shows up. Because this is, this is the platform where I probably get like my highest quality audience. Wow. Wow. That is, that is the best praise this podcast could get. No, no, no. I, I, I encounter it all the time that like the, the highest quality DMs, like a significant percent of them will mention the Bailey. <laughs> wow. I, I, no, I, meant that, I meant that earnestly. You have the ear of the Silicon Valley um, uh, hyper autist rationalist world. I'll, I'll decide later where to keep whether to keep this exchange in or not. 